If you would please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning, which is taken from Second Chap- Second Samuel chapter twenty-one, verses one to fourteen. Second Samuel twenty-one verses one to fourteen. That's our scripture reading. Our sermon passage is taken from Second Samuel chapter twenty-four verses one to nine. I think what you'll see is that these two passages, they bookend what has been called and what we've been referring to as the epilogue of 2 Samuel, really the epilogue of 1 and 2 Samuel. These, these two chapters, they bookend it. They, they in a sense, uh, form an inclusio uh, for uh, chapters uh, 21 through 24. And so I'll read to you our scripture reading, 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 14, and then our sermon passage, 2 Samuel 24 verses 1 to 9. Brothers and sisters, I remind you, as always, that this is the very Word of God. Please give your full attention to God's Word. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, From the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, what she had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square at Beth-shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought them up from there, brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Now turning to Second Samuel 24, verses 1 to 9. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number, the, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. 
But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aroer and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. This ends the reading of God's most holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it teaches us. But we admit, dear Lord, that much of your word is mysterious to us. There is a great deal that we don't understand. We are thankful that the vast majority of your word is understandable by human minds, by us. We're thankful for the work of interpreters, for translators, for those who seek to help us to understand the people and the places, the lands of ancient kingdoms. But Lord, we admit that today we are coming into contact with a great mystery concerning you, the things that we don't understand. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you'd give us understanding, but that you'd also give us the humility not to push too far. We pray that you'd help us to understand, but also, Lord, help us to be content in not understanding everything. Lord, you are God Almighty. And you have made us able to know you, and you have revealed yourself to us. But, Lord, we confess that we cannot fully comprehend you, nor can we fully understand your ways. But we do pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would teach us from your word today. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now this week we get to put into practice what we learned last week in Job chapter 19. This week we have to remind ourselves what we know about God. Because we're going to be challenged. We are challenged in this passage. And that's because our passage, it presents us with the challenge, how can God incite David against Israel, which results in David sinning against God, but God still remained faultless with regard to David's sin. What does it mean that God incited David to conduct this census for which David was convicted that it was sinful for him to do? And further complicating matters for us, is when you compare uh, 2 Samuel 24 with its parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21, which uh, if you read in verse 1, you'll see that it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And so something that we have to be prepared to run up against very quickly and be content with it is the mysterious ways of God. 
That's part of the reason for the selection of our hymn of preparation. We need to be ready. There are things that we simply cannot understand about God. Dale Davis says in his commentary, if we cannot be content to accept the mystery of this text, we may be revealing ourselves. Don't we sometimes subtly assume that God owes us an explanation? There are things contained in our passage this morning and at other points in chapter 24 which we don't, which we won't, we can't understand. And we have to learn to be content with that. And when we reach the limits of our understanding and the limits of what God has revealed to us, it is precisely at that point that we need to remind ourselves of what we know about God and be content with that. Here's what I ask you to keep in mind as we work our way through the sermon today. God is good. God is sovereign. And God can use even the sinful deeds of men to carry out his good purposes. Let me say that again. God is good. God is sovereign. And God can use even the sinful deeds of men to carry out his good purposes purposes. The sermon today is a two-parter. The first part of the sermon is kindled anger, and the second, playing at power. Again, kindled anger, that's the first part of the sermon, and the second, playing at power. So let's consider this first part of the sermon, kindled anger. Verse 1 of our passage says, in part, again the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. Now this is a reference back to chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, where in the epilogue, we're given a description of the first instance of God being angry at Israel. This is the first time that God was ever angry at Israel, but just within the confines of this four-chapter epilogue in which we find ourselves now. God was angry with Israel then, again now, in chapter 24, God is angry with Israel. And in that instance, in chapter 21, it became clear why the Lord was angry at Israel. It was over Saul's betrayal of the Gibeonites, with whom Israel had made a covenant during the time of Joshua. See, Saul had struck down the Gibeonites, and because of that, the Lord punished all of Israel with a great famine. And so when David, he went to seek the face of the Lord in chapter 21, he asked the Lord why he had sent the famine. God told him that it was because of Saul's crime against these people. Now in our passage this morning, we're not told explicitly why God is angry with Israel. This is the first mystery we encounter in this chapter. Some have suggested they may be right, they may be wrong. They've suggested that the Lord was angry over Absalom's and Sheba's rebellions, which were rebellions against the divinely established government of David. And you remember that thousands of people joined in with these two men, Absalom first and then later Sheba, to rebel against this divinely established government. This may very well be correct, but there's no way that we can know for sure the specific reasons why God is angry. And so we have to content ourselves with not knowing with any certainty. But the fact is that God is angry with Israel. They had done something to kindle his anger. They had committed a sin serious enough for God to punish them, and their punishment was severe. We'll find out in later weeks how severe it was. But notice how there is an inversion here in chapter 24 with what took place in chapter 21. In chapter 21, God is punishing Israel for the the sin of Saul. Here, God is angry with Israel, and he's going to punish David through Israel because of Israel's sin. 
But how the Lord goes about punishing them is the next mystery that we encounter. Verse 1 continues, And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. And if you were to look at the parallel passage in, in 1 Chronicles 21, you would see that the same word is used there, the word that's translated incite, but it's Satan there who incites uh, Israel, or David against Israel. The Lord uses the same word for insight in Job chapter 2, verse 3, when he tells Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you, the Lord's telling Satan, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now that instance in Job chapter 2, that's the second time that Satan has come to present himself before God's heavenly council after we read they're going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it in search of someone to accuse before the Lord. The first time Satan did this in Job chapter 1, the Lord called his attention to Job and described him there just as he did in verse 3 of Job 2. There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And when God told Satan that in Job chapter 1, Satan responds to God in verses 9 and 10. He says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands. And his possessions have increased in the land. In other words, Satan is saying that the only reason that Job is loyal to God is because God has so richly blessed him. That's the only reason. You take all these things away from Job. You take all of his possessions. You take all of his comforts. You take everything away from him. And he will curse you to your face. And so Satan tells God, tells God in verse 11, But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. That is the incitement to which God refers in Job chapter 2, verse 3. Satan challenged God. God, res- God responded in Job verse 1, 12. Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. But after Satan had taken everything dear to Job away from him, his children, his livestock, his property, still we read at the end of chapter 1 and verse 22, in all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job did not do what Satan promised God he would. He did not curse God to his face. Satan incited God. God permitted Satan to harm Job. But even so, Job did not sin in his response to his hardship and suffering. The second time that Satan demands to harm Job, in chapter 2, Satan guarantees God that he, if he's allowed to strike Job in his flesh, if he can strike him in his bones with physical affliction from horrible sores, Job will curse him to his face then. The Lord tells Satan in chapter 2 of Job, verse 6, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Now why go into such great detail about the -the behind-the-scenes exchanges between Satan and God in Job when we're talking about David? Because it appears that perhaps something similar is going on in regard to David and Israel. 
First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, it seems to corroborate this. We've already made reference to it, but let me read this to you. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. What 2 Samuel 24 says God did, First Chronicles 21 says Satan did. Now, in no way should we take this to mean that Satan and the Lord are in league with one another. Or to think that it, it affirms some sort of cosmic dualism in which God and Satan are eagerly powerful supernatural beings in constant battle with one another. The book of Job makes exceedingly clear that Satan can do nothing without God's permission. He is powerful to be sure. He is our enemy. We ought to, we ought to respect him as our enemy. But he is a creature. He's not equal with God. But he seems, at least in the Old Testament era, to have a place in the Lord's council. What business does Satan having, have taking a place with the council of God? Well, a British commentator framed it in terms of Her Majesty's most loyal opposition. We were in, our, in the book of Job uh, many years ago now. I quoted from the same passage. This opposition opposes the government, but they do so in ultimate and unquestioned subservience to the crown. Their opposition is a necessary and good part of British governments. They in themselves are devoted to trying to bring the government down. And yet in spite of themselves, their opposition serves a purpose in making the government better than it would be in the absence of opposition. In the same way, Satan will oppose Job and yet will do so in a way that strangely and paradoxically will eventually be seen to serve the purposes of the Lord. As Luther put it, Satan is God's Satan. God is not Satan's God. Satan is God's Satan. And so when we were in the book of Job years ago, we saw that God allowed Satan to test Job, but that this wasn't some sort of bare permission but that God, because he is God, was sovereign even over Satan's testing of Job. Now the situation with David and Israel is different. Nothing is said in our passage in 2 Samuel 24 about God allowing Satan to put David to the test. All we know is that Israel had committed a sin that caused God's anger to be kindled against them. And as a result, he incited David against them by telling him to conduct a census, and in so doing, David incurred God's judgment. And so we're back to this mystery. Why was it that God incited David to conduct a census of Israel's forces as a form of judgment, or at least to bring about judgment against Israel? And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, playing at power. Verse 2 says that the king said to Joab, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. And surprisingly, Job is, uh, Joab is resistant to this command. He responds in verse 3, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the, the eyes of my Lord the king will see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Even Joab senses that th this is something David should not do. He, he pushes back. But verse 4 says, The king's words prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And the next several verses detail the various places Joab and his men traveled uh, to in making their census. And when they'd gone through all of the land, as verse 8 puts it, they returned to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab reported to David the results of the census. 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword in Israel, 500,000 valiant men in Judah. Though verse 10 is in the next sermon passage, we can see 
Seemingly, immediately, David is convicted of his sin. When he gets this report, he recognizes that what he has done is sinful. So, Israel sinned against God. And to punish Israel, God incited David to conduct a census, which proved to be sinful. How are we to understand this? Well, like Job in Job chapter 19, let's go back to what we know. God is sovereign. There is nothing outside of his control. There is nothing outside of his will. Nothing exists except that he has willed it to exist. God is sovereign. God is good. God is not the author of sin. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. God is not the author of sin. God is holy. The seraphim in Isaiah 6 say to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There is no evil in God. He is perfectly good and righteous. There is no spot or blemish in him. Neither sin nor evil originated with God. But, and this is important, sin and evil are not outside of his control. Can you imagine if they were brothers and sisters? And some Christians do believe this, but but think about the ramifications. If God cannot control evil, if he has no control over sin, it means that he's not omnipotent. It means that there is something that exists in creation which is more powerful than he is, or at least perhaps he's chosen to let it run free without any sort of abatement, any bounds being put in place. What would that look like? Well, the world would be utter and complete anarchy and chaos, death and destruction, far, far worse than anything that we can ever imagine. Take the the worst wars that the world has ever seen and multiply them times an infinite number. We cannot imagine such a place. We don't want to imagine such a world if it were to exist in which God is not in control of evil. He has no authority over sin, but that does not make him the author, the originator of sin. Now, it may well be, but we need to remember that this is speculative, that in order for Israel to be disciplined for her sin against the Lord, that God ordained the sin of David in taking a census of his fighting forces. This may be the way that God has chosen, has seen fit to bring about the punishment of Israel. He makes their king who is a representative of them all to commit this sin for which God will send a severe punishment. One commentator writes, God destines doom for Israel using for this purpose the king who really does want to quantify his power. So God uses the sinful motives of David to carry out a census of his army which results in punishment for all of the people of Israel. Now, one can argue, and I think this is safe to say, that God is giving up David, to borrow language from Romans. He's giving David over, in a sense, to his sinful desire to number the armies of Israel and Judah. David apparently desired to make a measurement of his power by counting the number of men at his disposal. Now, it wasn't that the taking of a census in itself was bad. There are other places in Scripture, such such as in Numbers chapter 1, where taking a census is commanded. But David's motives for taking the census were sinful. 
And it was the sinfulness of David's census that brought to the fore the sinfulness of Israel. As David was punished for his sin of taking the census, so Israel was punished for its sin. David's punishment was Israel's punishment. Israel's punishment was David's punishment. We fear our sins being discovered and being punished for them. We regard discipline as the worst possible thing that could happen to us, but God disciplines those he loves. I, I can remember as a... I'd like to think I was younger than I probably actually was, but I think it was the last spanking that my father ever gave me. And I'm a little bit ashamed to say how old I was. I wasn't in college yet, I'll say that much. <laughs> but my father, he was old school. I don't say this in any, in any, uh, any bad way, malicious way at all. He loved me. But he would use a belt. Back in the old days, this is what you Mothers, my mom would send us out to get a switch from the Forsythia bush. We'd have to break it off ourselves. We'd have to strip it of its leaves. And then our, then my, then our mother, our mom, would switch our legs. My dad would use his belt. And at the age that I was, I'd done something. I can't remember what it was. I probably mouthed off to him. And my dad didn't like it. And he whipped off his belt But before he could get me with his belt, I dove across the coffee table, landed on the couch, wrapped myself up in a blanket. Probably junior, maybe senior in high school. (laughs) Not quite sure. Memory memory fades. That's a humorous story. We don't like discipline. And, And nowadays, that kind of discipline... And it's one of the reasons I'm somewhat hesitant to even relate the story. That kind of discipline, it might be, my parents could be charged with child abuse for that kind of discipline. Our society does not care for discipline. My father did not wish to harm me. But he wanted me to know that what I had done was wrong. We, in the same way, we do everything that we can to try to avoid discipline. Perhaps in ways that aren't quite so humorous. as the illustration, but we do. We don't like it. We don't like discipline. We try to avoid it. We don't see it as a good thing. But we need to remember that God disciplines those he loves. As we talked about at a recent men's fellowship, it is a mercy to be convicted of sins. It's a mercy to have your sins exposed. God does not let the ones he loves continue on living in darkness. He brings our sins into the light. David in Psalm 51 writes in verses 8 and 9, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Now the bones in this verse are of course metaphorical. What David means is that when his sin against Bathsheba was discovered, he was crushed. He was brought to godly repentance. But he understands that this crushing of himself was for his own good. He wants to rejoice because of the pain that he brought on himself. Now it's difficult for us to understand what it's like to be a king, to be an absolute monarch in whom resides all authority and power in a kingdom. Being king, David was the wealthiest man in the land. But I think even more heady than he was, uh, than, than being wealthy was the power that he wielded. But it's difficult to measure power. Sometimes I think that's why we've ended up in wars as a nation. I don't know that for certain, but I do wonder, I speculate, we end up in wars because it's a way for a president to to, to measure his his military might and 
in the military, having been a member of it at one time. We're all too eager to prove ourselves, to show how powerful we are. Now, David had many victories in battle, but to learn that you've got 1.3 million fighting men at your disposal had to bring about a sense of pride, a sense of, of power for David. By way of comparison, the U.S. has 1.39 million active duty military personnel as of 2022. Only China and India have larger militaries. Israel under David, a far smaller country and 3,000 years ago, had nearly as many members of his military as we do now. It's hard to compare that we're talking active duty, not reservists in that number for the United States. Did David have a standing military? In a sense, weren't all of his men reservists? It's, hard. it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, but you get the point. For a small country, 1.3 million is huge. That's a massive number of fighting men. David's sinful pride in his military might is used by God to bring justice on the nation because of its sin. As one commentator put it, because David was the head of the covenant, this was not just a personal sin. He had ruined things for all the people. And as we'll explore in further detail later on, David was brought to repentance. He was brought to repentance because of what happened. When the nation began to suffer as the angel of death bore down upon the city of Jerusalem, David confessed to the Lord that he had sinned and done wickedly. And he asks the Lord to let his hand be against David's and his father's house. He didn't want his people to be punished for his sin any longer. Brothers and sisters, repentance is a gift. Our our confession speaks of repentance unto life as an evangelical grace. We don't repent naturally in and of ourselves. Repentance is alien to us. It comes from outside of us, this ability to repent. But for the professing believer, daily repentance, it comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in us. And so, it's a gracious thing when God permits us by giving us up to our desires to fall into sin so that we will see the sinfulness that remains in us, so that we can see our continued need for our Savior. The Lord showed David what true power is, what righteous, holy power is, and in doing so, David could see that what he thought was power was really pride. God is good. God is sovereign. God uses the sinful deeds of men to carry out his perfect plan, which is is for his glory and for your good. Evil men, evil men offered Jesus Christ up to be crucified. But God caused it to happen. He ordained it to happen so that many, many people could be saved. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that though there is much we do not understand, we try to understand, we seek to understand, we, we humbly desire to understand. And faithfully, dear Lord, you show us our creaturely limits. You remind us that we are creatures 
that the world is a creation of your hands, that Satan himself is your creature. Lord, we are grateful that you have set limits, that you've created boundaries. We are grateful that you are sovereign even over the sinfulness of mankind and that you use it for your own good and godly purposes. That you can bend evil and turn it for good purposes. We are grateful that you bring about your sovereign plan in all things. That your intent, that your motive is always good even when those you use to bring about your purposes, have evil intentions and evil motives. Lord, we pray that you would gently humble us. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us not to resist you when you discipline us. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help cause the bones that you have broken to rejoice that we would see the the depravity of our sin, that we would see its true ugliness, and that by the power of your Spirit we would hate it, that it would cause us to love Jesus even more because of what he has done in rescuing us from sin's power. We pray this in Christ's holy name.